Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let all men know your forbearance. The Lord is at hand. Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, do, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning, I want to bring to conclusion our sermon series, Think on These Things. For five weeks now, we've been looking and talking about the fact that we're living in a time when our culture seems to be so incredibly divided, a time when the rhetoric has become harsh, angry. We've become so critical and at times cynical. We've talked about the book, Christians Living in an Age of Outrage. How quickly we go from zero to 60 in our anger and and the volume goes up. How do we, as people of faith, live in this time and try to make sure that we don't get sucked up into all the anger? How do we have a witness that is positive in this kind of a time? Well, if you've been wondering exactly what kind of day we're living in, I think this past week you were given the opportunity to see how angry and divisive things can be. As we watched the the process for interviewing our possible next Supreme Court Justice, Judge Kavanaugh, and then hearing accusations from a Dr. Ford. Now, you know, regardless of where you stand politically, regardless of how you read the situation, just step back from all that. And let's just look at the framework within which the conversation has been carried on. If you step back and look at the framework of the conversation, what I saw, I saw a senator who was just swarmed by all kinds of of press trying to ask, why are you going to vote? What do you think? They went down the hall. They went to the bathroom. They came back out. They started throwing the microphones in his face. And he said, look, nothing's changed since I went to the bathroom. Another one was being interviewed and said, this is a circus. It's an absolute circus. Another said, this is disgusting. I have not been through anything that I have found disgusting and deplorable is what I've been doing now. We saw anger go up, anger from citizens hollering at senators. We saw senators hollering at each other. We have heard such such harsh rhetoric towards one another. We've been listening to all of this in this framework. And I, 
I was in Chicago Wednesday afternoon to, to Saturday afternoon. I sit on uh, the board of directors of our pension program for the entire United Methodist Church. We had our quarterly meeting. And so I didn't get to see everything. I, you know, I was in meetings all day long and I got to see a little in the morning, a little at night, catch something maybe at noon. But I remember getting up Friday morning and there was the TV commentator who said, yesterday, everybody was watching. I mean, I went to the train station. I saw five people gathered around an iPad watching these interviews. I went to another place and there was people crowded around the TV. Everybody was watching. You know, I really think that's so good. And I thought to myself, well, yes and no. Yes, we should know what's going on in our country politically. But I wonder if everybody was watching that day because they were so interested in our politics or did they think they were going to hear something salacious, scandalous. And that's what drew everybody to watch. I was watching all of this and I thought about Hamilton Jordan. Somebody will remember, some of you will remember him. He was chief of staff for Jimmy Carter. Is back in 1970s. Many people would read his name Hamilton Jordan, but he called it Hamilton Jordan. It turned out that he was a young man who came up with an idea on how to create a, a political plan for the governor of Georgia, and he really helped get Jimmy Carter elected. And so he was chosen, 31 years old, single guy, to be the chief of staff at the Jimmy Carter White House. And he tells about how it was in July of of August of 1979, there was a knock on his door. And when he opened the door, there was the FBI. And the FBI said, anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. He had no idea what was going on. He would soon find out there were accusations, there were charges that he had been using cocaine at Studio 54. Studio 54 was an an outrageous nightclub, um, a very hedonistic nightclub with lots of drugs and sex. It was a crazy place. Well, it turned out, truthfully, he had been there once, stayed a short time. He saw this was not him, and he left and never went back. He said he really was working 14, 16 hours a day, seven days a week. He had no social life. He never went there. But in the end, there were these accusations. And it was very difficult because his responsibility, chief of staff, was to tell all the new people who came into the White House, we have a born-again Christian as president who has a no-tolerance drug policy. We are anti-drug and there will be no tolerance. He was anti-drugs, and now he's being accused. Now, what really had happened was that the two men who owned the nightclub, well, they were under indictment for income tax evasion, money laundering. They needed to make a plea deal with the feds in order to try to get their sentence reduced. And so the feds said, we want to know who was using cocaine there at the uh, club at Studio 54, Well, they didn't want to rat out their friends, so they said, well, one of them was Hamilton Jordan. And so a special prosecutor was appointed, 
The grand jury was called. It went on for 10 months. And at the end of 10 months, the grand jury voted 24 to 0 to drop all charges. And the question really, all that was left of the special prosecutor was, do we go and prosecute these two nightclub owners for perjury and obviously lying? And the special prosecutor went to Jimmy Carter and they discussed it. And finally it was decided, you know, this has gone on for 10 months. Let's just let it go. And so all charges were dropped. He was innocent. And that was the end of it. Except everybody had heard the story for 10 months. It was a couple of years later. He got onto an elevator. He was at a political convention. He was by himself. And then at the last moment, Walter Cronkite stepped on to the elevator. He hadn't seen Walter Cronkite in years. Walter Cronkite, when the story broke about Hamilton, within just a day or two, they carried it on the CBS Evening News. All about the allegations, all about the accusations, all the things that he had done, supposedly, and Studio 54. It wasn't long after that that CBS, 60 Minutes, well, they ran a, uh, a whole half of their program on Studio 54. It was so salacious. And Hamilton Jordan, the 31-year-old single man in the White House who is now accused and all that followed. He had never seen to be able to talk to Walter Cronkite. But now they were in the elevator together. And it was Walter Cronkite who said, Of all the stories that I regret in my career, yours is the most. We handled that poorly. We shouldn't have run that story. I apologize. Hamilton was grateful for the apology, but he immediately left and went back to the White House to talk to Jody Powell, who was also on the White House staff. And he said, you know, millions of people saw the accusations on CBS Evening News. I was the only one to hear the apology. And Jody Powell said, Hamilton, you need to understand, the truth never catches up with a salacious lie. So, what is the truth? It's according to who you ask. Because everybody seems to have an opinion of what is the truth. And they're opposite of one another and they are so strong in their beliefs. We will probably learn more. I don't know. What I know is in the framework of how we're dealing with the issue, we seem to have lost a sense of civility. Now, is it important to talk about issues that are difficult and hurtful? Absolutely. But how we talk about things is almost as important as what we talk about. And that's what we seem to have forgotten. So how do we as Christians, in an age of outrage, find a way to be able to deal with issues and not find ourselves being sucked up into the rage and the anger and finding a way not to get depressed because of all that we're hearing? And how do we have a positive witness because of our faith? 
That's why you and I have been looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians in the fourth chapter for all these five weeks. We've been looking at exactly the same Scripture. We've been looking at the same Scripture because Paul is right here trying to tell us what are the things we need to be thinking about? What are the things we need to be doing? It was generated because of Iodia and Synthache, two women who had worked side by side with Paul, who were now having this serious argument. And the question was, how do we keep this to a sense of civility? How do we agree in the Lord? How do we keep the mission of Christ going forward? And so Paul begins to talk about all of these things that we have been looking at starting in verse 4, and today we're going to specifically look at verses 8 and 9. And when I read the 8th and the ninth verse, the thing that jumps out at me is Paul lists a, a variety of virtues that we should think about. What is true? What is honorable? What is just? What is pure? What is lovely? What is gracious? Is there any excellence? Anything worthy of praise? Think on these things, he said. Now, it's fascinating. The virtues that Paul lists there are not uniquely Christian. Most philosophers of his day would have agreed with that list of virtues we should focus on. And I think it's important to remember that Paul was not afraid to embrace culture if culture was in harmony with the Christian faith. But when I read through all of that, it occurs to me there's two very important things Paul's telling us. And one is he's saying... You get to choose what you're going to think about. Here's a list of virtues. Think on these things. You get to choose. What you have heard in me, what you have seen in me, do. You get to choose what you focus on. You get to choose what you do. And if we hear if we do and focus on the things he said, Paul said, then you will know the God of peace. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the peace of God, which passes all understanding. We said that's a gift from God, peace that comes in the midst of conflict. Today, it's a different thing. Today, we talk about the God of peace, the God who gives you strength, the God who calls us together. You will know the God of peace. So how do you and I know the God of peace in the midst of such a tumultuous time in our history? How do you and I not let ourselves get so dragged down in anger? How do we keep a Christian witness in our own lives? It's what I want us to think about on this last week and, and I really want to leave you with three thoughts. First of all, Paul said, whatever is true and whatever is honorable, whatever is just, think on these things. What is true and honorable and just? I shared with you a, a little over a month ago now, uh, Phil Greenwald and Wendy Lambert and Josh Attaway and myself, we, we all went up to Washington, D.C., and we went to the Museum of the Bible. It's such an incredible place that the Green family has given and so many have joined in. And we, we went up to try to meet with a lot of the leaders there to kind of learn a lot more about how could we use this incredible gift to help us all grow in our faith? How could we learn how it's infected our culture? And how could we get a vision for a future? 
And so we went up to meet with them. And starting in 2019, we're going to lead multiple trips a year with small groups to go to the Museum of the Bible and to go to other museums, different themes, to be able to grow in our faith, to learn about the Bible. How has it affected history? How does it lead us into the future? So we went up and went to the Museum of the Bible, but um, one of the uh, uh, things that we also learned about was we went to the African American Museum. Now, I had never been to the African American Museum. It's only been open since September of 2016, just two years ago. And it really was a very moving experience to come in and be confronted with what was happening in the 1700s, the way the slave trade was just exploding, how it was in that time period that people were being seen as commodities, being captured in Africa, shipped off in deplorable conditions, whether to England or to the Caribbean or to the United States. I mean, it was horrendous. It was unthinkable. To be confronted with that, to be looking at that, in the United States, we tend to think of how it was the cotton industry that that benefited so much from the slaves. And that is true. But what we sometimes neglect is the fact that It was through slaves that there was a lot of other industries that were driven, and that's like rum and sugar. In fact, in 1700, in 1700, ships hauled about 80,000 tons of, of sugar. In 1870, ships hauled about 200,000 tons of sugar. In 1800, just 30 years later, they hauled 175 million tons of sugar. We know that 90% of it was produced by African slaves. When you walk in and you begin your tour there of this African American museum, you come to a, a board with a statement by William Cowper, an Englishman, and I want to read you what it says. He wrote, I admit I am shocked at the purchase of slaves and fear those who buy them and sell them are knaves. When I hear of their hardships, their tortures and groans, it's almost enough to draw pity from stones. I pity them greatly, but I must be mum, for how could we do without our sugar and rum? I pity them greatly. But I must be mum, for how could we do without our sugar and rum? Does that sound honorable and just? I think what happens is, if you and I aren't careful, we get so focused on what we want, what's good for us, where we stand in an argument, that, that we stop remembering or thinking about What is honorable and just? What is good for all, not just good for me? Or good for me at the expense of another? I think that's what Paul was trying to write to Eodia and and Synthache, writing to say, you have been working side by side with me to share the gospel, to build the church. Are we really forgetting what's honorable and just? 
what's right for you? Is that going to help to destroy the church? Can we somehow come together in Christ? It is easy to get so focused on oneself, defending one's position, defending one's argument, thinking about what we want, that we forget what is honorable and just. While we were in Washington, D.C., we went to the Museum of the Bible, went to the American, African American Museum. We got in our car and we were headed on our way to the airport. And as we were on our way to the airport, um, we suddenly said to our taxi cab driver, could we stop in right here by the Lincoln Memorial? I've been to the Lincoln Memorial before, but I love the Lincoln Memorial. I'm a great fan of Abraham Lincoln. And the taxi cab driver was so nice, he pulled up at a stoplight and said, I'll meet you back here in a few minutes. And we all got out and ran across the street in the traffic and went over and started going all the steps all the way up to the Lincoln Memorial. You go up and you finally get up to the top and there you, you look up into the face of the president looking down on you. It's a powerful experience. You know, Abraham Lincoln was such an amazing person. Talk about living in a time of conflict. A time of anger. I mean, we were so divided into a civil war. And as president, he was so beaten up by other people. He was so criticized. There was so much anger turned on him. I mean, he was criticized by the South, but also by the North. He was criticized by the Democrats, but also by the Republicans, his own party. He was criticized by his own cabinet. No, he was always being criticized and always being attacked, and yet he never responded. He didn't respond back to all that was being said, and people even wondered about it and asked him about it and said, how come you never respond? And Lincoln said, if I were to respond to all the attacks on this office, we would be closed for no other business than that. For Lincoln, what's the focus? What matters here? Hold the union together and free the slaves. That was the focus. That was the vision. It was just. It was honorable. It was true. That was the focus. And when he stayed focused on that, then he didn't have to respond to all the attacks and the criticisms. He stayed focused on what mattered. It keeps you grounded. What matters to us? Well, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart and mind and soul and strength. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. Every time somebody joins St. Luke's, we ask them the question, will you commit to share God's love and bring hope in the world? If you and I were committed to sharing God's love and bringing hope to the world, maybe we would feel less that we have to be engaged in such anger and arguing all the time and we stay focused on what actually matters. Now I say again, there are times when you must discuss difficult situations and we must confront difficult truth. But how we talk about it will be determined if we stay focused on what the goal is. To love the Lord your God and to love the neighbors yourself. To share God's love and bring hope in the world. 
when I got through with the first service, I, ha- I had a mother come up to me, very kind lady. She said, you know, uh, every day when I take my daughter to school, she's young, and when I take her to school, the last thing I'll ask is, so how are you going to share God's love today? And she's learned the answer. She always shoots back, I'll be kind. She said, but you know, I really never thought about the fact I'm not asking myself that on the way to work. What will I do today to share God's love and bring hope in the world? What if you and I were to make that commitment in this coming week that wherever we work or wherever we play, the question will not be how do I defend myself? The question will be, am I seeking to share God's love and bring hope in the world? If we stay focused on our mission of what we are called to do, it changes how you operate in a world around you with so much anger and rhetoric going on. Secondly, Paul would say whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, think on these things. Is that what you and I like to focus on? Whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, whatever is gracious, or whatever is scandalous, whatever is salacious, whatever is going to cause such a ripple. Sometimes I think we love to focus on those things, not the lovely and the pure and the gracious. And as I said, sometimes you have to focus on hard issues, but how we focus is critical. In the meantime, I think you and I find it easy to pass on stories of things that that may not be true. How many times when when something comes across your your news feed, whether it's from uh, your political commentator or your um, social news feed, and you read a story and you think, man, that is really, that's just salacious. That just, wow. And if you really stop and think about it, Probably doesn't even sound true, but we pass it on. We love to share those stories that we don't know for sure and probably aren't true. Sometimes we like to share the stories that are true, but we had to ask ourselves, does it really help to share it? Maybe the answer is yes. Many times the answer is no. What do we like to share? What do we like to focus on? You know, Philip Neary was a wonderful Italian Catholic priest back in the 1500s. He is now St. Philip. In fact, if you go to Rome, they will talk about the three apostles, and that's going to be Peter, Paul, and Philip. He is held in very high regard within the Catholic Church. He lived to be almost 80 years old. As I say, it was in the 1500s. He was just a man of an incredible spirit and leadership in the church. Well, he had a a lady, part of his parish, who, who loved to gossip. She loved telling all those salacious stories. Anything she heard that kind of sounded exciting, boy, she loved passing it on, always stirring people up. And finally, she came to realize just how wrong and hurtful that was. And she came to Philip to say, what can I do to to make amends? And Philip said, well, go to the marketplace, buy a chicken, go home, pluck all the feathers, put them in a basket, and bring them back to me. 
Now that's not the counsel she was expecting from Philip. But she went to the marketplace. She bought a chicken. She pulled out all the feathers. She put them in a basket, brought them back to him. He said, that's first step. Second step, go back to the marketplace, scatter the feathers there where all the market people are selling, all the vendors, and just scatter them around and then come back and see me. She went and scattered all the feathers there in the marketplace. She came back to see him. He said, great. Third and final step, go back to the marketplace, gather up all those feathers, put them back in a basket and bring them back to me. And she said, I can't do that. I mean, I've scattered them throughout this marketplace. All these people are shopping and kicking them. The wind is blowing. I have no idea where they have gone. And he said, exactly. And we have no idea where all of those stories you have told have gone. And there is no way to ever go and gather them all back up. You can never make restitution. Twenty years after Hamilton Jordan had been in the White House... He said, I still get asked by people, so what was it really like at Studio 54 and all those drugs and sex? What are the stories that we share? To be able to look and to think carefully, are we focusing on what is pure and lovely and gracious? Do we think about what is true and honorable and just? To think about where we are before as our witness as Christians we choose to share. It'll change your spirit. It'll change how we live. And so third, Paul would say, is there anything of excellence? Is there anything worthy of praise? Think on these things. Is there anything worthy of praise? You know, I've been trying to work each week because I wanted to kind of lead us through this sermon series. Each week I was looking for illustrations to be able to talk about how are we a society that I believe has become uncivil, we're angry, we're hard. So each week I was looking for these things and I must tell you, they were not hard to find. I have many examples and illustrations I hadn't been able to work into a sermon series yet. But I'll tell you something else I discovered. There sure is a lot of good things going on out in the world. There is so much good. As Paul said, it really is a choice of what you choose to see. Just a couple weeks I was in, ago, I was invited to come down to a fundraising luncheon at the Skirvin Hotel. It was for Cleats for Kids. Mark and Stacy McDaniel, members of this family of faith, I really believe had a vision from God. The whole idea was in their home, they, they started looking, they had their kids who were growing up and if you're a parent, you know how sometimes you, you buy a pair of cleats for your kids, play baseball or soccer or basketball, whatever it is, you buy a pair of shoes and man, they outgrow it so fast. They're not worn out. You got these shoes, you got equipment. Well, we used to play tennis and we thought we wanted to play volleyball, we wanted to play soccer, we wanted to play... And Equipment gets set aside. And I started thinking about all the kids who really can't afford shoes to go play or have equipment. Did you know that 90% of all students in the Oklahoma City public schools are on free lunch or subsidized lunch? If you can't afford to put lunch or food on the table, then you're not worried about buying 
shoes or athletic equipment. And yet all the studies have shown as kids get involved in athletics after school, that's the danger zone, three to six. And if they become passionate about what they're doing, well, they stay in school. Their grades go up. The graduation rate grows up. And so they thought, we could do this. So when we arrived, Phil and I went down to this luncheon together, and as we, we came walking in, oh man, they, suddenly there were all these um, young ladies who are cheerleaders lined up, and they're cheering. It's kind of like you're running out on the field of the football game in high school, running through the banner. They're cheering. At the end, there's a couple young men who've been playing football, and they were going to graduate high school, and they were they're heading off to college. You had all these kids standing around saying, thank you. We went in and we heard the stories and we saw and we realized they they told us this year, seven years into this, 20,000 children are going to receive shoes. 20,000. A hundred high schools. It is incredible. I looked around the room and I saw so many St. Luke's people that I know were giving of their time and their talents and their money and their soul to help bless people. And I came away from that gathering and I just got to tell you, I felt great. I thought there is so much good going on. People who are blessing life. I'd been so focused on finding the illustrations of all the anger. There's a lot of good going on. This last week I, I was walking through our um, narthex here. I'd been in threefold in a meeting and I was walking along and looked over in the chapel. It was packed packed with all of the children from our child care ministry. Susan Eastham, our, our children's director, she was in there. She was singing and she was waving and, and the kids were all standing up and they're singing and waving. She'd tell them to stomp, tell them to holler. I mean, these kids were rocking and you could just tell how much fun they were having and it was just packed. And I just stopped and watched all these kids and I knew that that was happening up at St. Luke's Edmond. I knew it was happening at our first kids. I knew it was happening at Trinity. I have had so many parents say my kid's favorite time of week is chapel. And I started thinking, what are we doing with Studio 222 in its 15th year? What are we doing at El Sistema? They'll be giving their concert. What are we doing at Rancho Village with our mentoring? Did you know a thousand children a day are blessed by St. Luke's? A thousand children a day. I started thinking about how we've been to Russia and we keep going to Honduras and to Alaska. I started thinking of the thousands upon thousands of meals delivered through mobile meals. Now let me tell you something. If you just want to stop and start looking around in the world, you'll see so many things worthy of praise. Our focus can become on all of the negative, the anger, the things that are wrong. And I'm not saying we deny them or not deal with them, but that's so much more to life and this world. Are there things worthy of praise? I think that's what Paul was trying to say to these two women, Iodia, Syntyche. You know each other. You've worked side by side. We have a vision of what we're trying to be as a church. Is there anything in this person you know and have worked with that's worthy of praise? It would change the conversation. We stood up there at the Lincoln Memorial 
I'd stood there looking into the face of Abraham Lincoln and then turned around and walked back down the steps just a little ways and looked down the National Mall. You know, that is a beautiful sight if you've been there. You look across the reflecting pool, you see the Washington Monument, you go all the way to the Capitol. I stood there looking across the mall and thought about us as a country. And I thought about how we had been so close to being torn apart in the Civil War and how Lincoln, though being attacked by so many, had held us together. And when it came to the end and he was elected to a second term and, and we knew the North was going to win, it was fascinating to see his spirit. It was the same it had been throughout the entire Civil War. One of compassion, one of forgiveness, one of resolve. Maybe it's because he continued to focus on the right things. But now when it came near the end, there was a woman who came to him after the election and said, how are you going to treat the Southerners? And he said, I will treat them as if they've never been away. He knew the God of peace. And so can you and me. We, in the midst of all the conflict and turmoil, can know the God of peace. Think on these things. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.